Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hello, hello, welcome. It's uh, April 3rd. So, that's good. <laughs> I keep... I keep waiting. I, I'm looking at the trees all the time and saying, please, come, come, come. I need green. The forsythia are out. I got daffodils and I've planted pansies and all that's good. There is color coming. Are Easter eggs the color and Easter candy the colors they are because they're re- because that's all the flower, the spring flowers. I mean, it, when I look at what I've planted, it, it just looks like Easter. It, it looks like Easter egg colors. I'm just saying. My guy is still lying out there on Smithfield. So. The world is too much with me. I got news for you. It was um, last February that I had had it and uh, took the month off. I, I might be getting close to needing to do that again. I don't know. Um, I, you know what? <laughs> I, I struggle with all of this so much. Um, the new thing is, you know, self-care. Take care of yourself. But that can, that, while I understand the necessity of that, because none of us are any good to anybody if we are not ourselves together, but self care taken to the nth degree is just selfishness, right? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm way too busy uh, taking care of myself to deal with all the horrors around me. I don't know. I struggle. So I came upon, there I did it, so, I came upon um, an HBO special that I watched last night. I, I found it mostly riveting, uh, in part because uh, some of it focused on this area, but m- and Cyril Wecht plays a big role in it, but the other part is that it's about what I have been manifesting and what I often talk about, which is the stress of living in this time and this place. Um, the documentary is, is uh, pr- produced by uh, the CNN uh, medical specialist, Sanjay, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, um, who you'll recall was offered the Surgeon General's position I think under Barack Obama and uh, turned it down. He he would have been a good one. 
And it turns out that Sanjay Gupta really respects Cyril Wecht. So this documentary starts with Cyril, and I think it kind of ended with Cyril too. And Cyril, for the, it, it, he, I mean, he's, what? He's got to be in his 90s now. I think. Closing in, if he ain't there already, he's got to be late 80s, 90. And he's still vigorous, still working. Somehow they managed to edit him down so that it's a, you know, He's not off on his, you know, sometimes extraordinarily long-winded polysyllabic uh, uh, rants. But one of the first things out of his mouth in this thing is while he's cutting into a cadaver, uh, doing an autopsy in uh, Westmoreland County. And he's asking his staff questions about the body. How old? 19. Female. Suicide. Shot herself. And I think one of the first things you hear Cyril say is something I say a lot. Jesus fucking Christ. So Cyril talks about how he is seeing what he calls, I mean, a monstrous, I think is the word he used, just monstrous is the word he used. He, he says that last year he did 556 autopsies. And more than half of them were drug deaths. And he says this is what is happening all across our country. And he says the death toll is far greater than what we experienced with the AIDS crisis. He says this, meaning drug deaths, and also suicides, um, is a significant epidemic of monstrous proportions. Well, if that's the case, why the hell aren't we, uh, you know? I and the the program goes on. to talk about what they term deaths of despair. And even though we live in the richest, most powerful nation on earth, we are dying at a monstrous rate from what is termed deaths of despair. People turn to drugs because of the pain they feel, physical and emotional. Suicide 
because of the pain they feel. Cirrhosis, alcoholism, a result of despair. And this has resulted in an extraordinary drop in the life expectancy of Americans. The, uh, the, the documentary points out that in all other supposedly civilized, industrialized Western nations, the ones we'd recognize sort of like our own, there is no similar decline. We are an outlier. Something is happening in our country that is literally killing us at an epidemic proportion. So it's all part of the piece of what I was reacting to the other day when I lost it, how I feel surrounded by despair. I internalize the despair around me. I personally feel it. And it only intensifies. And what I didn't like about the documentary is to me it sort of avoided what is the biggest part of it. And it is capitalism. The kind of capitalism that we, capitalism slash technology slash the power slash that, th that those entities, the capitalist power, corporate power, that they hold over us. And how they create the environment we live in. From the foul air to the fouled water, to the fouled political dialogue, to the fouled popular culture, to the fouled civic discourse, to the lessening of the kind of social bonds that used to provide um, some respite for most people from despair because we are people who are pack animals, even a loner like me, and I am a loner. I need people. I just want them on my terms. <laughs> but I, we are a nation of lonely people. There was a uh, statistic out earlier this week about how the majority of young Americans I think the cutoff was 35, maybe it was 21 to 35. The, ma the majority of people in that age group do not have a partner or even a boyfriend or girlfriend. They are unattached. This is like a Petri dish for growing despair, what we have created here. 
So we get hoodwinked by the trappings that we live with, with all the things um, and the distractions, the entertainment, the this and that. It seems like things are okay, right? But they aren't. And this documentary, it's titled One Nation Under Stress, um, shows that we are living in a awful, toxic environment. So if you're feeling, if you could empathize with my, you know, being ambushed the other day and crying, you know, you feel it as well. We can't blame it all on the guy in the White House. He's just a symptom of the despair. It was despair that drove a lot of people to vote for him, right? Despair and the anger that that despair causes, because anger is a big part of it too. They shot this thing, uh, I think, a year ago. And um, the fact that they put it here, I mean, it starts with a, a, an aerial shot of right around here, I think actually Greensburg, that's where Cyril, I guess, now pretty much does his, his work. In the 1960s, this country had the highest life expectancy in the world. We are now almost at the bottom in life expectancy for major developed nations. So... People, you, who feel something is really wrong, you're right. We're not wrong about this. Despair is a perfectly reasonable, I think, reaction to what we see as the loss of what had been better. The documentary ties a lot of it to the shrinking middle class. Uh, Cyril is very clear about the dead that he is seeing, the canaries in the coal mine that say, hey, yoo-hoo, anybody noticing? We're dying! Most are what would be termed middle class, working class, white people. They are the ones succumbing most to the opioid epidemic, to alcoholism, to all of, and suicide. Do you know more people die by suicide from guns in this country than homicide? 
we're killing ourselves. We're killing ourselves, and they make it clear, too, with obesity. We're killing ourselves in the way we live. And that obesity epidemic, eating ourselves to death, is also a gift from our repulsive capitalist culture. They hook us over and over again on damaging and destructive habits. They put enough sugar and salt and fat in them that they know how to hook us. They know how to hook us on these screens, too. They know how to take away our attention, to take away our sense of control over our lives. And that's what the psychologists that are uh, and uh, behavioralists and neuroscientists who are seen in this documentary uh, tell us that this kind of despair often comes from a sense of no control. There's a reason rich people live longer. They have control. It's known even in studies done with animals that an animal who is stressed because they're being treated unfairly or can lose control of what they had will become despairing. We are no different. Despair leads to drug use, to alcoholism, which both of which can lead to death. Cyril says it's not depression in the medical sense, but despair. And he says that even though when he, when he writes on a death certificate after an autopsy, you know, he writes uh, death by uh, overdose of, uh, you know, fentanyl, uh, this, that, the other, th or cirrhosis of the liver. Um, right under it, there's a space for contributing factors. And he said there's no doubt that that is where, in almost all these cases, you would put stress, despair. It results in behaviors as people try to find some palliative, some way to s get some surcease of the pain. And it leads to death. Cyril says... The pressures on people are becoming greater and greater. 
making a living, the depersonalization of society, the roboticization of society, families breaking apart, splitting off, all play a role. And then the constant pressure to keep up with everything we're told we should be keeping up with. It's hard to admit when you've been raised and thought that you lived in a great nation. It is hard to accept that we're living now in a nation in obvious decline. The United States of America is going to turn out to be a flash in the pan. Cyril says this epidemic is not going to end in the foreseeable future. No, of course not. Because things are not going to get better. Because we have the kind of systemic corruption now in our country <laughs> that there is no easy fix for. I know everything I just said sounds very depressing, but I must say I recommend this. I think every once in a while it sort of loses, slows down a little in a way, uh, but mostly I found it pretty damn riveting. Again, it's on HBO. I know with Sanjay Gupta you think CNN, but it's on HBO. And it's called One Nation Under Stress. I would watch it if I were you. I mean, part of me, it, you know, as I watched it, um, the talk of empathy comes up. And they say that empathy is what is needed. And I think it was in that. I take in so much stuff. I'm, I'm wondering, was that in it? But, uh, no, I think actually it was in an article that a friend sent me the other day that empathy, studies show that empathy actually reduces stress. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what? <laughs> I, empathy, as I said the other day, to me, empathy kills. Uh, empathy results in such feelings of powerlessness to help that it becomes just another, you know, stressor, a big stressor. Okay, so I, that's just my, I would, uh, 
watch that if you can. Um, I know I've been, I've been watching more television, trying to distract myself. It doesn't help to distract yourself when you're watching something that tells you, you know, all these kinds of depressing things. Yes, t little Tony, thank you. Good news today, excuse me, is that uh, Pam Iovino, whose name I couldn't remember yesterday, won. So the uh, Democrats are back in control of that Senate district, and there's one more Democrat in the Pennsylvania State Senate, and also one fewer in the Republican majority there, putting possibly the uh, Pennsylvania Senate uh, in position to get flipped. It, it might be hard. I'm not aware of, yeah, I'm not a student of the state legislature, but it certainly brings it closer. And this is another win in a suburban district for Democrats, which, uh, yes, should make everyone feel better. Um, we have a caller. Caller, hello. Hi, Lynn. It's Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Uh, and I've been listening to you all week and uh, it's really moved. Uh, I guess it was on Monday. Yeah. And coincidentally, you know, I've been feeling the exact same way. And you bring up the subject of, you know, like despair. And it's something that I've been thinking about quite a bit with myself. And I notice it in a lot of the people that I'm close with. There's this general, I don't know, malaise. And whether it, you know, is all because of politics or it's uh, partly because of politics or just looking around and the news and everything. It's really easy to feel that way. Yeah. Uh, but a couple of things that if, if I could kind of like, I don't know, play the devil's advocate or disagree with you on uh, in terms of like drug use. And this is like kind of nuanced, but there's a chicken and egg kind of a thing here. I would contend that not all drug use and drug addiction comes from despair. I think that some of it comes, you know, drug use comes from peer pressure and just uh, general. I know that my drug use and my alcohol use and smoking cigarettes, which I just quit, actually, uh, it came from when I was younger, when I was 13, I wanted to grow up really quick and I wanted to hang out with the big kids and the adults. And by doing that, I was doing drugs and I was drinking, et cetera, et cetera. Fortunately, I never got too far out of hand, but I know too many people who uh, did get hooked, you know, uh, on heroin and, you know, various other drugs, you know, cocaine was super popular in the eighties. And I know a lot of people oh, that yeah. fell, you know, that kind of lost their whole, you know, livelihoods over that. Right. So I could just contend that it's not, uh, you know, it's a chicken and egg thing. What came first, the, des the uh, despair or the depression or the drugs? Mm -hmm. I think when you get hooked by drugs, it's really easy to become depressed. Oh, yeah. So, uh, oh, I just because, like again, it's a, again, it's a loss of control. I think that's yeah. a big thing. When you feel you have no control, when you just feel, to quote Dylan, you're a pawn in their game. And increasingly, that's well, what Americans feel. Well, well, you know what, too? And I think part of it is just because of the times that we live in, in terms of, like, communication and expectations. 
and let me also preface this too that you know there is a reason why religions were invented mm-hmm. you know and that reason was the same reason why people do drugs because you know what our bodies our physiology are not made up to feel happy all the time you know what i mean and there's a lot of mystery involved in life and that's one of the reasons why there's a religion and you know is there any coincidence that the i guess there's less people that are you know members of an organized religion now and more people depressed or more people doing drugs is there a correlation there i don't know possibly but in terms of like despair that people feel you know what if you start so many people i see want to compare themselves to other people so that, and it's the old, it's a cliche. It's like keeping up with the Joneses. You know, if, you know, if your friend, if your friend has a Mercedes, why am I driving a Ford? What am I doing wrong? Why am I so unlucky? Why is the universe looking down on me because of this? You know? So, and when you look at TV, which a lot of people do, I've pretty much sworn off TV. The only thing I watch really PBS and the, the Buckos and well, the Buckos now and the Penguins, that's it. That's all I watch. I cannot watch commercial TV. Uh, the advertisements are just so oh, I know. they're nauseating, yeah. you know, and so they give us, you know, they give us these false expectations of what you're supposed to have. You ever notice how pretty all these people are that are driving the Lincoln Continentals and the Cadillacs and the BMWs? And not only are they pretty, but they're young. Now, tell me, how many young people do you know? That can afford a BMW, you know. Well, when you and when you talk to your average person, like a person in Greenfield or a person in Stanton Heights or whatever, what the hell am I doing wrong? It's really easy to, well, that's to feel That's the despair. capitalist part of this that they create un just absolute constant desire and. Uh, and and needs that don't that aren't needs um the, the right. that you've got to have this stuff or somehow you're not successful and it works and so pe- yeah. it it really works on people it's so sad and so so stupid just so stupid yeah well i mean some of us i guess are self-aware enough to know that the $10 hamburger is going to taste pretty much the same as the $100 hamburger. There's only so much you can do with a hamburger, right? But yet, I mean, there's some stuff that's out there like, what was it? Some kind of gold-plated French fries or something that was in the news like a month and a half, oh, two yeah, months ago. Do you remember that. seeing that? It's actually gold, yes. It, in the, yeah. Well, you yeah. know what? What's with this well, bullshit, you know, yeah, there? It, that was out so, of like, like you know, uh, and, one of the Emirates, or I think, uh, you know, that's where people have so much that if you really want to show you're rich, then you have to have food sprinkled with gold. So, I mean, well, anyways, you know, like I was going to say, it's, it's a lot of bad expectations, you know, for anybody feeling despair. And it's really easy to believe me. First of all, turn off the news. Yes. Okay. Uh, turn off the social media, talk to your friends, look around your neighborhood. When you start actually interacting with people, whether they're Trump supporters or not, you find that people aren't that bad. People are and, people. Right. And coincidentally, I read something about this uh, 
there was an op-ed in uh, today's Post-Gazette about this professor from, uh, I guess, Yale, that his wife had said something yes, about yes, yes, yes. people dressing up in costumes and right, stuff. Right. And his his bent is that, you know, actually civilization is progressing and it's not all that bad. And he's not the first person to write a book about this and, and look at it. Now, you know, as long as we temper our expectations, I think that we might be able to survive. And it has been ever thus that people have felt this like depression or this like, you know, longing or despair, whatever life ain't easy. It ain't like in the movies, you know, there's a lot of loneliness too. And when you see people who are, you know, like you were saying, people that aren't attached, that don't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a significant other loneliness really hurts too. Yeah. I think that's a big part of the problem. So, and I think the, uh, you know, the, these screens are pulling people farther and farther apart and uh, people will get to the point where they, I, you know, I just think some of the thing that I think we've got young people now who really are, don't know how to interact face to face. And probably the fact that, you know, somebody would touch them does seem like a violent. They're not used to being touched, physically touched. Right. Yeah. You know, Jesus. we fear, we we fear robots taking over, or, you know, like actual mechanical robots. But yeah. the question is, are we becoming, is, exactly. are humans becoming robots? Yeah, you know? don't get me so started. So I'm going to get going. That. i got to get back to work. I just want to say one last thing, Lynn. I love you. Your show is great, and you touch my heart every day. Oh, God Bye. bless you. Thank you. Oh, David, thank you. David? <laughs> Was it David? I'm sorry. I got the name wrong. I love you, too. I've. He's been calling me for so long. I, I love him, too. Bree, who, as you know, uh, does not live in this country anymore, although he's from here, uh, has said, emailed, that um, he does workshops. You know, he's mostly in Asia. I guess he is in Asia. He says, I do government workshops on best practices. And he said, increasingly, participants in these workshops do not want to hear about American examples or case studies. In other words, He's seeing that when you're not in this country and you're telling people how to do something, he's doing a workshop on best ways to do something in a government, he's encountering people who say, well, don't tell us what the Americans are doing because we see where that ends up. We have lost our stature, our status as something to be, you know, looked up to, to epitomize. And because he's lived in Singapore and Japan, he now uses best practices from those countries. And that's interesting because uh, Rodney, the receptionist, uh, is a subscriber to National Geographic, and he always, he reads it cover to cover, and then he tells me 
things he's learned and says, you got to read this. And I've this is the most recent one, and it's called Cities. It's all about how cities function all over the world. And you know what? Our clock is being cleaned. Our cities are so extraordinarily not cutting edge, not best practices. Uh, and it, it's it's just fascinating. We're being left in the dust. Uh, Brian writes, I just wanted to say thank you for your show. You don't have to do what you do. But you know what? I do, I think. You could have easily retired and gone away. I wish I could figure that out. I don't, I don't, I often think, well, what would I, I don't know what I'd do. I really have come to, um, this for me is interaction. I know it seems mostly like it's going this way. I would like it more if <laughs> there was more feedback, as there was more in, on radio. But, um. He says you have good family genes and could easily live into your 90s, but doing the show maybe. <laughs> you know, I, no, I, I, I think the, the HBO documentary clearly shows this stress kills. And if it doesn't kill, it lowers our, um, our life expectancy. Because they show you what happens when you're stressed. When an animal is stressed, I mean immediately what happens, the chemicals surging, you know, the, in, the endorphins, the adrenaline, the this, the that, blah, 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 blah. That is meant, are, we're, we're made to feel that kind of stress when literally our lives are in danger. You know, they, they show, uh, you know, an animal, a zebra, is, uh, you know, eating some grass somewhere and all of a sudden a lion is coming at it. Well, that's a stressful situation. That's the kind of stress our bodies are made to deal with, not the kind of stress that we deal with on a daily basis. The little picky stressors, the one that had my sister going bonkers yesterday, the customer service stress, the this stress, the that stress, the nasty look stress, the boss stress, the work stress, the this, these, these kinds of things so that those stressors set off those same chemicals. And when our bodies are constantly being washed by those chemicals, which is not what is supposed to happen, it has an impact on the body itself. It causes things to, to thin or to thicken in ways you don't want them to, and it kills, ultimately. Stress kills. All of that is in that documentary as well. Hey, I want to tell you the fine folks here have told me that um, they're trying to grow this a bit. And there are so many different ways you guys access this. But I think they want me to tell you that if you listen on iTunes, for instance, they, they need you to let, I, it just says this. If you're doing it on iTunes, click subscribe. It doesn't cost anything. 
and give my podcast a five-star review. You hear me? Give, like, give it five stars because the more five stars they see, the more than it, it – I don't understand any of this goddamn stuff. But please, you could help me by doing that. If you're listening on YouTube or watching on YouTube, you again, there's a big red subscribe button. Punch it. And then you hit this bell. There's a bell notification and ring the bell. <laughs> okay, that's a plus for me. Um, you can like my Facebook page as well. All of these things now that would up the profile would help the show. Ultimately, maybe help me. It'd be nice. So I'd appreciate that. Um, uh, okay. Uh, oh, I do have something. Um, wait, wait, wait. Hang on. Okay, this is the only thing I'm going to say about Trump today. Did you see that he said that windmills can cause cancer? Did you see that? Yeah. And I, I, I was reminded of it because somebody tweeted... It's just totally weird that the president casually says that the noise from windmills can cause cancer, and no one will even be talking about that. <laughs> it's true. Or that, you know, the Chinese woman showing up at Mar-a-Lago, no one's going to talk, or the 25 people got, it's, it's true. We're, and this is, you, you want to talk stress? Coupled with despair? Yeah, there it is again. Um, here's oh, just two things on. There were two stories with nudity, um, the major part of the story, in the international section of the New York Times today. And I have to share it with you because, I mean, that's unusual. <laughs> One was on this page, I finished reading that, and then I see there's more nudity over here, a totally different story. Here's the first one, has to do with Brexit. So it turns out, God, you know, at least that's not our stressor, but <laughs> you want to see the end of an empire. Wow, God, not with a bang, but a wimper. So anyway, the British lawmakers are there in the House of Commons, and they're, you know, they're pontificating and excoriating and doing whatever they're doing, which isn't much. And um, one guy is uh, is in mid-speech, and he notices that everyone whose attention he wants directed at what he's saying, they're all looking like this. They're looking up mouths open it's because there's a there's a you know a, a visitors gallery up there and there were a bunch of protesters up there who had taken their clothes off so there's all the, they're not totally naked they have little little teeny bikini underwear on but you know top up i mean waist up they're they're naked and they're just standing there, men and women, and they've got things all over their bodies, painted signs, protests. And 
actually what they were saying was Brexit is not the biggest problem facing this country. It is climate change. So they were environmentalists. And the poor guy uh, who's speaking says, um, I encourage everybody to look in this direction rather than uh, another direction. He later talked something about my peripheral vision. And he kept just sort of stoically uh, <laughs> going on. Um, so then I guess the, the, the security people came and they tried to get these people out. And one of the naked people had actually glued themselves to the, they have bulletproof glass in front of the gallery and had glued himself to it. And so they had a little trouble. So obviously no one's listening to the, the MP who's uh, speaking. Um, the group that organized this uh, wonderful little distraction is called Extinction Rebellion. Uh, pretty good name. Okay, so that's the one uh, naked story in the news today. And the other is out of, um, where was this? Uh, Sweden. Um, you know, the Swedes, they sit around in saunas all the time. Okay, so there's this, there's this Swedish guy. He's sitting in the sauna, sweating. He's got nothing on. And uh, there's a few other guys in there. They got nothing on. And one of the guys with nothing on happens to be a cop. And he's looking across at this other naked guy, and he recognizes him and says, Oh, boy, that guy is wanted. It's a fugitive. And so, here's the story. Without a badge, without a gun, without handcuffs, Without a stitch of clothing, this cop managed to arrest the naked perp. It's a big story in Sweden today. Well done. He's going to get a war. He's going to. Everybody is very proud of him. And this being Sweden, the uh, it is said that the officer would receive overtime pay. <laughs> Because when he was naked in the sauna, he was off-duty, and yet he performed his duty in an extraordinary manner without benefit of his usual tools. He will be getting uh, overtime. Okay, so those are the two naked stories for your pleasure. Um... Yeah, I don't even want to go there, Tony. So, here, I'm going to annoy Bernie people. <laughs> it's not hard to do. Uh, my sense is is that the, the Bernie people are, um, they don't seem to have much of a sense of humor, but then I suppose none of us do. Uh, Dana Milbank, uh, writing in the Washington Post today, is, um, is suggesting that Bernie Sanders is... Uh, sort of the Donald Trump of the left. Well, if you think, you know, Bernie Sanders backers are going to go ballistic with this guy. They have already, apparently. Milbank's already tweeting that, I mean, he's he's been, it's, it's ugly what's going on. 
But they say, I mean, and I pointed this out too. Um, we don't need another old, well, here, I'll let, I'll let uh, Dana Milbank say it. Fundraising, because he's got more money than anybody. Fundraising, and he's leading the polls, unless, except when uh, touchy-feely Biden is. Fundraising and polls show that many Democrats obviously think that the best answer to an angry old white guy with crazy hair, a New York accent, a flair for de- and a flair for demagoguery is, well... An angry old white guy with crazy hair, a New York accent, and a flair for demagoguery. Now, I'm sure people will say, Bernie, a demagogue? Well, no, I don't know. But um, the fact of the matter is, is I don't get it, and I never have. Uh, I don't think Bernie could win. I think Bernie it would be an awful Johnny OneNote candidate, he said um, the other day that, wait, I'm trying to see if I can find the tweet, here, here, tw- the, the, the quote, here it is, this is Bernie Sanders, the crisis that we are facing today is not complicated. This is what I don't like about Bernie. Yes, Bernie, it's very complicated. No, Bernie, it's very complicated. We were talking earlier about how complicated things are. And he's such a Johnny OneNote, promising all of this stuff if we just do this, that, or the other thing. And there's never any real... It's what I don't like about Beto either. It's just big promises and, uh, you know, if we just stick it to the 1%, everything will be... It, it, it doesn't work that way. He's It's... it's oh. I think he'd be a big mistake, and I think the people who are enabling him are making a big mistake. And let us not forget that the Russians... We'll be helping Bernie, just as they did last time. They love him because they know he's not a good candidate. I don't know. And Milbank says, you know, Sanders is like Trump, seems sort of Teflon. He somehow seems untouchable in a Trumpian kind of way. You know, those claims that there was sexual harassment and heavily testosterone-infused crap going on on his 2016 campaign, did that hurt him? Did that become a big story? No. Um, He has never released his tax returns and, in fact, won't. What's that about? It's weird. I mean, the idea of getting rid of Trump and then having to have Bernie, Jesus, God. I, I refer you to um, Rob Rogers' hysterical cartoon 
where he had the same Bernie picture. It looks like this. Because that's what he looks like. Wait, I got it. Wait. He always looks pissed off, and he's hunched over, and the captions on each of the pictures were, you know, here Bernie is uh, angry, here's Bernie upset, here's Bernie happy, here's Bernie. It doesn't matter. This is the way he shows himself, and I don't understand why people get so blown away by him. He's my least favorite of all the Democratic candidates. He did a lot of damage to Hillary Clinton. And maybe that's part of why. Who knows? But I, uh-uh. God, if you got, you know, I've said, it doesn't matter who we put up, we're voting for the person. But God, I will be sick to my stomach if I have to vote for Bernie Sanders in 2020. I will, but I'll be sick. Okay, uh, Chicago, another, Chicago has uh, its first uh, black female mayor. Um, it, and she's gay. So, wow, they got three, check off three diversity things. All, I mean, that's a trifecta. That is. Way to go, Chicago. Black, female, gay. Woo! I wish her all the best. This is the kind of thing, after the, mach the guy's machine gets done screwing everything up, they'll let a gay black woman in to see if she can clean up the mess. God help her. Oh, no, I'm not going to have time to get into that. Okay. Obit, I guess. I think, yes. Obit, obit. Bessie Blount, or Blunt, if she pronounces it like Mel, the Steeler, Blunt. Uh, Bessie Blunt. I never heard of her either, but she is also a black woman. And uh, she was seven years old in a classroom. They called it a classroom. They didn't have any textbooks. She went to a school with no textbooks. And a sadistic idiot teacher who, like, slammed a ruler down on her hand while she was writing because she was writing with her left hand. They did that. Jesus. And she, in, listen to, so a seven-year-old girl gets hit for writing with her left hand, and her reaction to that is, oh, she gets so angry. I'm not supposed to write with my hand. So she doesn't let, she, she teaches herself to write with her toes and her teeth. What a brilliant kind of a thing to do, you know, as a powerless child. Oh, I can't write with my hand? Well, I'm not going to write with this one either. 
I want to write with my teeth. I'm going to write with my toes. And she did. She uh, attended the school that black kids went to, and that school did not have textbooks. Uh, later, they got some used books from that white schools had thrown out. But she recalls in the early um, year, years that she would, um, each child would read a verse out of the Bible, and that's how they learned how to read. That was the only book that they all had access to. So I'm talking about 1920, 1921. Um, and this was, that was in Virginia. Her family later went to New Jersey. And that kid who could write with her left hand, probably her right hand too, her teeth and her toes, ended up getting a nursing degree. Pretty impressive at the time. Um, and she was able to do that because there was a hospital in Newark, New Jersey, that had been founded by the physician to Booker T. Washington. His name was John Kenny. And he, when he moved to New Jersey and to the Newark area and learned that uh, hospitals would not hire black doctors, he uh, founded a hospital, Kenny Memorial Hospital. And that is where she studied nursing. She went on to study physical therapy. She became a licensed physiotherapist um, in, in the Bronx. And a lot of the people she was working with then were World War II vets, guys who had come back, who had lost their arms, might have lost their legs. And guess what she taught them? She taught them how to write with their teeth and their toes if they had them. And when she went home, she worked on inventing a contraption that would allow men who didn't have the use of their hands to feed themselves. Because nothing is more dispiriting, I'm sure, than having to be fed like a baby. And so she spent 10 months developing what she called the invalid feeder. She lived in a time when invalid was a perfectly okay word and in fact would tell these guys, you're not a cripple, you're only crippled in your mind. The w only workshop she had was her kitchen and she used the stuff she had there. An ice pick, a file, a hammer, dishes, boiling water to, uh, to melt uh, uh, plastic that she might have, trying to melt plastic down. 
Um, she would work from one in the morning to four in the morning before she went back to work. And she developed this amazing thing. She made a, spent $4,000, which would have been a fortune for her, making a stainless steel working model, which she demonstrated at a New Jersey hospital. And when she did that, the audience of doctors and nurses gave her a standing ovation. And the way it would work, she, she designed this thing, is a patient would bite down on a tube that would then activate a motor and a morsel of food would be dispensed through a spoon-shaped mouthpiece and the device would then automatically shut off between each delivery which would allow the person time to chew. People said it was an ingenious apparatus. A Canadian company manufactured it. The U.S. government said, no, we're not interested. The head of the VA said, it's impractical. Hand feeding by nurses and attending personnel is the more satisfactory method. And then in 1951, she decided she'd give it away the invention. She signed the rights over to the French government. And they went to town with it. The Americans, of course, wanted nothing to do with it because some black woman had invented this. You know what else she uh, designed? Those, you ever been in a hospital? The kidney-shaped plastic bowl that you're supposed to puke into? That was her invention, Betsy Blount. She turned her attention to forensics. She became a handwriting analyst. She started detecting forged documents for police departments. And then she took an advanced course at Scotland Yard and is believed to be the first black American woman to have even ever trained there. She became a courtroom expert and somebody wrote, there's this old black woman sitting in the back row of the courtroom not saying anything. And then when the lawyer says, I have my expert witness I would like to call, she'd stand up, throw off her coat, throw off her rain bonnet, and stand up and present her theories. It would blow the juries away. Betsy Blunt who when she died was trying to, was working night and day to make a, um, a museum um, of her school house, the one with no textbooks. Just somebody. Just somebody. Okie doke. That's it for me. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll uh, be back tomorrow as far as I know. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com.
The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.